and welcome to Pale Blue Pod, the astronomy podcast for people who are overwhelmed by the universe but want to be its friend. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Aww. Um, I'm Karin Caputo. I'm a comedian and writer and space enthusiast. Mm-hmm. And I am Dr. Moya McTeer. I'm an astrophysicist and a folklorist and someone who just really loves sharing my knowledge of space with other people. And that's what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm here, to learn a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, Corinne, where are we recording today? Oh, okay. We are recording today on my parents' incredible couch, Ooh. which is many years old, but it's like that homey feeling of like the holidays and we're back. And the cushions are really comfy and soft, but they are full of, it's like a down insert, I think, which means we're going to get super sleepy soon. Yes. It's just how it works. But I think we could get some good knowledge in before we pass out. Yeah, me too. I can see the the fun little like feather ends poking up through the cushions. Yes. And like, yes. you know, those are sharp, but it's also part of the experience. Like, I'm really happy. <laughs> yeah, to the here. sharp surprise, but it's just part of it. And you get the reward of a feather when you pull it yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Like, oh, a little bit of discomfort, but then it, it tells you that there's there's magic there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so while we're on your parents' couch, we are going to be discussing a pretty important topic in astronomy, something that actually the entire field of astronomy is built on. Like, if this thing mm. didn't exist, we would not have astrophysicists. I would have a very different job. I don't know what I'd be doing. Uh, But today, (laughs) we're talking about the electromagnetic spectrum. Whoa. (laughs) Uh, Corinne, when I say electromagnetic spectrum, like, what comes to mind? Do you know what that is? I think I do. I think it's like that rainbow image of kind of like a long rectangle, and it's like (laughs) all the colors, and there's there's like kind of like sound wave stuff going on on top. Mm -hmm. I couldn't decipher one if I saw it, but I think I would recognize what it is. Yeah, yeah. Those those waves that you see on top, they are light waves, not sound waves. Cool, Um, cool. But they, yeah, there is that rainbow block that you'll see, uh, and that's the that represents a very specific part of the electromagnetic spectrum, but there's uh-huh. also stuff on either side of that rainbow block. And we are going to be talking about all of it today. This is actually, uh, so as I prepare for these episodes, I write down notes. And my notes for this episode are longer than any other episode <laughs> notes we've had so far. <laughs> so we're going to have a great time is what I'm saying. Yeah. We'll have to fin- get this in before we fall asleep. So mm-hmm. let's try. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So let me snuggle a little bit further into the cushions. I really want to make sure I leave a butt print when I leave. Yeah. Yeah. You better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so let's, I think, start with the basics. Like if you're talking about the electromagnetic spectrum, which is the the spectrum of light, we have to first ask the question, what is light? Ooh, what is light? Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people might get uncomfortable around around this idea because it's kind of it's kind of a weird abstract concept to grasp. But light is both a particle and a wave. Um, the particles of light are called photons, and th- together photons or packets of photons can act as a wave. And I think that you don't have to let yourself get all caught up in this, you know, like as humans, we understand that waves of water are made up of individual water droplets and individual H2O molecules. Like, let's think of light in a very similar way. Okay, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So the fact that light is both a particle and a wave is that idea is called wave particle duality. And it was officially discovered in 1924 by 
again, the names, um, a man, a scientist <laughs> named Louis de, de Broglie or, or Louis de Broly. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> he was French, maybe. <laughs> it, was, it was in 1924. I know that. And he was trying to understand how electrons behave. Um, electrons, just like photons, are fundamental particles of the universe. Um, so he realized that not just electrons, but all particles can act as waves, even particles of light. And this helped pave the way for quantum theory, which we are not going to get too deep into today. Uh, but quantum theory tells us, like, how do particles interact with each other? How do they behave? How are they formed? Um, mm -hmm. And we can thank our modern understanding of quantum theory in part to Louis de Broglie. <laughs> uh, but he was by no means the first or the last person to be thinking about wave-particle duality. Um, Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein were both dabbling with wave duality for a while. Um, Newton, going back to the 1600s, was doing some fun experiments with light. Einstein was doing some fun experiments with light when he was thinking through his theories of relativity. But yeah, de Broglie is the one who gets the credit for this wave-particle duality. Cool. Um, perhaps the best evidence that we have for this duality of light comes from a very famous physics experiment called the double slit experiment, which was first done by a man named Thomas Young. And Corinne, I'm wondering if you can guess, maybe not the exact year, but like when abouts do you think the double slit experiment was done for the first time? Um, okay, tough, because I hate the name double slit experiment. Yeah. So maybe yeah. I want to hope it was done long, long ago. <laughs> um, but if this was just, or kind of, if Louis did his stuff in 1924, maybe this happened in 1944. Oh, interesting. You think the slit experiment came after oh. the duality work. It was much. I guess that wouldn't make sense. Yeah, it was, it was way before. <laughs> way before. <laughs> this is proving how quickly my brain falls apart. You know, you, it's, it's not your fault. You're on a comfy couch. Like, <laughs> you're doing better than anyone can expect. <laughs> I think this happened in 5 BC. Mm. <laughs> okay, maybe not quite that far back. The first double slit experiment was done by Thomas Young in 1801. A lot earlier than you would expect. Um, I and was wrong. We've done this experiment so many times since. I did it as a college student. Um, I did the experiment, and then I also had to do the math to explain what was happening in the experiment, which was not as fun as doing the actual experiment. I yeah, I'm you. sure. <laughs> it's always the lab days in school, like in elementary and middle school, are always way more fun than like sitting in lecture stuff. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it always felt like a mini field trip. <laughs> Uh, so, so light is a form of energy that exists in both a wave and a particle form. That particle is called a photon, and photons get created any time an electron loses energy in its atom by dropping to a lower energy level. Um, so if you have that, that image of an atom in your mind of the nucleus at the center with all the, the protons and the neutrons, and then mm -hmm. around that nucleus there's a cloud of electrons, but those electrons orbit on specific energy levels, um, okay. and they can have all sorts of different configurations, um, especially as you get up to bigger atoms that have like 80 electrons orbiting around them. That seems like chaos. <laughs> it is kind of chaotic. When you get down to the atomic level, when you get down to the quantum level, like things, 
it gets weird down there. <laughs> so so every time an electron essentially is like, I'm tired, I'm going to drop to a lower energy level, a photon immediately gets produced with the exact same amount of energy that the electron lost. Oh, okay. So it's like a perfect balance. Exactly. Yeah, because one of the uh-huh. big rules of the universe is that matter and energy can not be destroyed um, or like created from nothing. So if you have an electron losing energy, that energy has to go somewhere. And the universe has decided to put that energy in the form of a photon. Okay. So lots of things can make electrons jump to a lower energy level. It can happen through a chemical reaction, like fire. You know, fire produces photons. It can happen in the cores of stars when they are fusing elements into each other. Those electrons get smushed together and they will jostle around in their energy fields, Mm -hmm. and that will produce a lot of photons. Um, Even if you have an electron just moving through an electric or magnetic field, that will produce photons. And it can also happen just like spontaneously. Um, Like there, (laughs) (laughs) there are people who study like how often do electrons just spontaneously jump to lower energy levels? And that can happen. It's really fun. And the reverse is true. Also, if an electron gets hit by a photon, if it gets like injected with the energy of a photon, that electron will go up in energy levels. Okay. Mm-hmm. So okay. It, it works both ways. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. And remember I said that there are so many different configurations that are possible for electrons around their atoms. Because of that, there are lots of, of like specific amounts of energy that an electron can drop, which means there are lots of specific amounts of energy that a photon can have. Okay. If that makes sense. Sure. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> okay. So, well, I I said that every time an electron loses energy, a photon is created with the exact same amount of energy lost. Right. So, if an electron is jumping from, like, level three to level two, mm-hmm. that's only going to produce a, a small amount of energy, and the photon produced will be a low-energy photon. But if an electron is jumping from, like, level 50 to level two... Then you're losing a lot of energy and the photon produced will have a lot of energy to it. Got it. Okay. yes, Mm -hmm. that makes sense. So there is a range of potential photon energies or you could say that they exist on a spectrum. (gasps) There it is. (laughs) There it is. It took us 11 minutes to get there, but we finally said the word spectrum. So we we did not discover this electromagnetic spectrum all at once. It happened slowly over time as we discovered different regions of the spectrum. But humans could tell for a long time that that light was interesting. You know, we saw rainbows um, when the sunlight would pass through clouds or, mm-hmm. or water vapor. We can see light getting diffracted or like bounced around through water or through glass, like even if you don't have advanced scientific instruments, you can tell that there's something cool about light. Yeah. So an early experiment that was done in 1800 by William Herschel actually looked at how uh, light splits up into different colors. You know, they, they saw rainbows and they had invented prisms. So they had tools that could take light from the sun and split it up into the different colors of the rainbow. Um, Herschel did this experiment where he set up a prism had the light from outside passing through it so that it split up into the colors. And he put a thermometer 
in each of the the bands of different colors. Oh, sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because uh, he wanted to see if, like, the red light was a different temperature than the blue light. And it was. But, an, like, a really cool thing he did uh, that shocked a lot of people was he put a thermometer, like, to the side of the red band, you know, where, mm-hmm. where there wasn't a colored band, but he measured that temperature anyway. And he was probably trying to do it as some sort of control. Like, if I put the thermometer here, then that's going to be the temperature of the room or something. Sure, yeah. But it wasn't because he was placing his thermometer in the place where the infrared light was landing on the table. Oh, I see. It so was like, just he couldn't yeah. see it. He couldn't see it, yeah. And so he, he noticed that 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 empty space where he put the thermometer was hotter than the the red band of light. And so in 1800, William Herschel discovered infrared light, which is really cool. Um, and he set off this cascade of discoveries. So a year later, a scientist named Johann Ritter tried to do the same thing, but on the opposite end, he put uh, a thermometer like above the, the purple band, mm-hmm. and he discovered ultraviolet light. And then, like, a few decades later in 1867, James Maxwell, who, like, literally wrote the equations that describe how light, electricity, and magnetism are related. They're called Maxwell's equations, and we will probably do an episode about them at some point because they're really (laughs) cool. Uh, So in 1867, James Maxwell hypothesized that if there is this infrared region of the spectrum right outside of what we can see, there's probably stuff beyond that, too. And then 20 years later, um, like 1897, no, 1887, I can do math. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't, so. Well, well at least one of us can. <laughs> um, the, the Maxwell hypothesis of there being more wavelengths of light was proven by a man named Heinrich Hertz. Heinrich. Heinrich. Um, And he discovered microwaves and radio waves, which are both longer um, and less energetic than infrared radiation. And so then for the next, like, few decades, people were trying to discover the other uh, regions of the electromagnetic spectrum. A lot of them were discovered by accident. But I think it is important before I talk about the actual regions of the spectrum to tell you about how we scientists label them. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, So we can talk about photon energy in terms of wavelength or frequency. Uh, Both of these terms rely on light acting as a wave. Mm -hmm. Um, So the the wavelength is given in units of length, like nanometers or centimeters or meters or whatever. And if you picture a wave, the wavelength is the distance between two peaks right next Mm -hmm. to each other. Okay, yes. I remember that. Yeah, like if you see the picture. Yeah. Um, The other way to talk about the different regions of the electromagnetic spectrum uh, is to use a unit of frequency. Um, And we actually have assigned frequency the unit of Hertz. Uh, That's the unit that we came up with named after Heinrich Hertz, who found proof of microwaves and radio waves. Frequency tells you how often a light wave will pass its peak. Uh, So if the wavelength is distance between peaks, then the frequency is like how often, if I were standing in one place and the wave was going by me, how often would I see a new peak? Okay, sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And technically the, the unit of hertz is like one over, it's the inverse of seconds. It's the inverse of time in case that means anything to you. Um, But a good way to think of this is that longer wavelengths equals lower frequency equals less energy. Okay. Yeah. I'm picturing me and these long, the longer the wavelength, 
it just feels like slower between them. Like I, I can kind of visualize mm-hmm. exactly that. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Good. Um, I tend to be more comfortable thinking in terms of wavelength, but mm-hmm. I have a lot of colleagues who are much more comfortable using uh, hertz uh, and talking in terms of frequency. So I'll probably stick to wavelength sure. in this episode because I think it's more intuitive, actually, than yeah. frequency. You don't have to do that weird like inverted time thing in your head. Totally. But... If you want to practice your conversions, there is a very easy way to convert between wavelength and frequency uh, using a simple formula. Uh, The wavelength equals the speed of light divided by the frequency of the wave. Okay. Yeah. Simple if you've got a calculator. (laughs) Exactly. Um, just some, some quick bounds here. The most energetic, highest frequency part of the spectrum is called the gamma ray region. Uh, the wavelengths there are <laughs> 9 times 10 to the minus 12 meters. So they are one trillionth of a meter. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Very small, very yeah. energetic. Uh-huh. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have radio waves, and they are anything longer than 30 centimeters in wavelength. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow, those are very different lengths. I know. It's a huge (laughs) spectrum. This is what I really wanted to emphasize at the beginning. Like, there are so many ways for electron clouds to be configured. So there are so many different, like, discrete energies that a photon can have. It, It ranges so widely. It is very important as astronomers to observe the universe in the whole electromagnetic spectrum because some objects are best seen at different wavelengths. Um, There's this analogy that I really love that compares studying the universe to listening to an orchestra. Looking at the universe with all of the wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum, it, it lets you see all of the different things, just like listening to an orchestra lets you hear all of the different instruments acting as one. But if you were to observe the universe in just one wavelength, if you were only looking in in the infrared, for example, that's like going to an orchestra and only hearing the clarinet section. Mm-hmm. I just saw the movie Tar, so this is, that really resonates. <laughs> Tar? <laughs> it's Kate Blanchett's like <laughs> movie where she plays a conductor and she's this made-up character named Lydia Tar, and it's I loved it. I am not the type to sit through anything long, and I always fall asleep during a movie, and this one, I really listened. Oh, my. What was it? Like, why? Because it it didn't even have hobbits or dragons. It it was was completely real life. It was very normal. And it's about this woman, (laughs) Lydia Tarr, who's this iconic conductor in the world of this movie. And it opens with her at, like, a New Yorker talk. And she basically gets, like, called out for potentially grooming i'm saying allegedly grooming as if she's a real person um (laughs) up and coming like female students you should see it i loved it i loved the ending specifically anyway now i'm an expert in orchestras (laughs) Mm -hmm. yes you're an expert in orchestras and soon you will also be an expert in the electromagnetic spectrum (laughs) um and in order to do that i think that i need to take you on a journey through the electromagnetic spectrum, from the most energetic Yay. waves to the least energetic waves. We we are going to go on a little romp through the rainbow. That's what we're doing. I love right that. Now. A romp through the rainbow. <laughs> okay, starting with gamma rays. They're fast. They're so fast. They're <laughs> so tiny. They're so small. Uh-huh. Aww. So small. <laughs> they were first discovered or observed in 1900 by a scientist named Paul Viard, uh-huh. I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> who <laughs> uh, 
Paul Viard was studying radiation from the element radium, um, but it wasn't named by Paul Viard. Uh, this region of the spectrum was actually named by Ernest Rutherford a few years later. Um, Rutherford is perhaps best known in the science community for giving us the the structure of an atom with like the nucleus in the center and mm-hmm. the cloud of electrons all Maybe around. the name sounds familiar and maybe it's from that large atom project I had in sixth grade where we built one. Honestly, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I would not be surprised. <laughs> um, so the gamma rays will have wavelengths of from one trillionth of, of a meter. <laughs> Oh my gosh. On average, all the way up to like 0.1 nanometers, which is like 100 millionth of a of a meter. I don't know. Wow. It's, it's yeah. also very small. Also still small. So still small. too small. Yeah. Like, I could give you numbers, but at this size, the numbers aren't really yeah, It's kind useful. of meaningless to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I, you should just hear... Very, very small. Yeah. Whenever, whenever uh-huh. I say a number, that's what I'm yeah. gonna think. <laughs> um, gamma rays can be produced naturally on Earth. Um, most of the time, that happens through radioactive decay. So, if you have a radioactive element or isotope like uranium, um, that element will decay, uh, which means it will break down into like smaller particles. And one of the particles that it will produce is a gamma ray photon. Um, These rays are also the byproduct of a lot of nuclear reactions, and they are found in space around extremely high energy events, even more high energy than a supernova explosion. Like we've observed these events that we call gamma ray bursts, and it's still kind of a mystery of what forms them, but it is extremely energetic explosions and collisions. They just have this very short burst of energy, of gamma energy. Oh, my God. And we don't know why? Well, we've never been able to observe one in real time because Uh, they're so short. Sure. Is the problem. Wow. Mm -hmm. And so um, in our last episode, we talked about the Vera Rubin Observatory, or Mm -hmm. formerly known as the LSST. And um, that should help us understand transients in the sky, these these objects that appear right. sometimes but then are gone. Mm-hmm. I remember you saying that. Yeah. So hopefully this uh, Vera Rubin Observatory will help us understand gamma ray bursts. Let's finish it up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, gamma rays have this really annoying but cool quality. Um, they are so small. And so energetic that they can penetrate pretty much any dense object. Um, So x-rays, when you take an x-ray image of your body, that works because the x-rays will go through your skin, but they won't go through your bones. Right. Um, But gamma rays will go through your bones. Whoa. Spooky. (laughs) Spooky. Yeah, so they'll pass right through your bones and right through your organs. But weirdly enough, they have a hard time passing through our atmosphere. (gasps) A twist. Yeah. It's like they're, they are so small that they are actually smaller than other particles in uh-huh. our atmosphere. Um, and they, they are smaller than the distance between particles. So if a gamma ray tries to get through our atmosphere, it just gets bounced around too much and doesn't reach the ground. Oh, wow. Okay. It gets kind of mm-hmm. kicked around. Yeah, Um, which means we can't really do gamma ray observations from the ground. We have to put them, put these gamma ray telescopes on balloons or aircraft, or we have to just send them up into space. Uh, So 
I guess the most active gamma ray telescope right now is NASA's Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope, which was launched in 2008 and was only supposed to work for a couple years. And now here it is, 2022, and it's still kicking. I love hearing that. I love those little surprises in space. Mm -hmm. A lot of telescopes do that, actually, outlive their projected lifespan. So many. Is that because we're just really underestimating or we're just like it's because we're trying to be very conservative. Yeah, I was going to say it's a conservative yeah. <laughs> mindset. Mm-hmm. Good. We should continue that. Yes. Because I love the surprise. <laughs> it's a pleasant surprise. Yeah. If you, you know, uh, expect the worst yeah. and then you'll be pleasantly surprised. It's an under promise and over deliver mindset. And that is what we should all be doing. <laughs> no, actually, no, that's feels capitalist. Don't do it. That, that's also true. <laughs> no <yeah>. working. Um, <laughs> Let's leave that sort of productivity to the telescopes, like to the actual machines. (laughs) The machines can do it. (laughs) Um, So that concludes our brief tour of the gamma ray region of the electromagnetic spectrum. And now we're moving on to X-rays, which were discovered by... Wilhelm Röntgen. I took German for four years in high school, so I can do the German names. So that one's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, it has one of those umlauts over the O. Wilhelm Röntgen um, <laughs> discovered X-rays by accident in 1895, and he called the energy that he discovered X because he didn't know what it was. Sure. And they didn't even know that it was a kind of light. It was confirmed in 1912, like, what, 17 years later, that it was actually a, a form of light. What did he think it was? I don't, just like a, like an energy uh-huh. or okay. something. Sure. Yeah. This is a part, a time in our history when, you know, like we weren't that far removed from philosophers and alchemists talking about sure. the ether. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so like... The bounds between force and energy and, like, spectrums of the... Like, we... It was all kind of blurry. Yeah. We didn't have the the rigid uh, delineations that we have now. Yeah. You could almost still write it off as, like, Zeus. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is... Yeah, it's just, it's just the gods. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You can see through someone's body. Exactly, We yeah. can take a look at the bones because the gods wanted us to. Because <laughs> the... Ob- obviously, <laughs> Zeus wants everyone to be able to see their bones. Yeah. <laughs> How else would we know who the best sacrifices to him would be? Oh, my God. This is going to make everything easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they didn't realize it was light until 1912. 1912, a big year. Titanic. Oh, my gosh. And we discovered X-ray light. You're you know? so right. Wow. A lot to do. The newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> they must have been so busy. Oh, my God. Extra, extra. Read all about this energy that we don't know what it is yet. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, the wavelength range for X-rays span from 0.1 to 10 nanometers. One nanometer is a millionth of a meter. Okay. Yeah. So it goes from like a tenth of a millionth of a meter (laughs) to 10 millionths of a meter. Okay. I think that that number makes sense. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, these orders of magnitudes are difficult to to like do in in your head quickly. We can make x-rays on Earth by running electrons through a tube and smashing it into an element like tungsten or copper. Um, And we have been doing that for a really long time. when Röntgen discovered the X-ray, he was doing something similar. He was like working with these vacuum tubes and 
throwing electrons at elements and having a great time. In space, they are produced by very hot objects. And when I say hot, I mean millions of degrees. Oh, my God. Okay. Ouch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and um, that's in Celsius, but also like in Fahrenheit. Once yeah, like millions it, when of degrees. It's that, yeah, when it's that hot, yeah. I don't think the unit matters as much. <laughs> exactly. Like it's it's very hot. Um, so by very hot, very energetic objects and phenomena like supernovae, pulsars, which are uh, left over after some supernova explosions and the 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 accretion disks around black holes so like the the disk of material that is slowly falling into the black hole Ooh, will okay. produce x-rays sure because it gets very hot around a black hole as all that stuff rubs together so x-rays are hot but they they do not appear when something is hot they appear when something is very, very hot, hot. Yeah, I I know you're thinking about yeah. infrared stuff. Okay, yeah, We're yeah, gonna, yeah. We'll get we'll there. We'll get there. Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm thinking of x-rays and I got, I went to a new dentist and they took x-rays for, I want to say, an hour. It was like what? just taking picture after picture after picture. Now I'm thinking they were running some kind of insurance scam where they, they yeah. could just bill for a lot of x-rays. But if you want to see every kind of my teeth from every angle, I, I can show them. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'd look at that. <laughs> I remember growing up hearing that you had to log all the amount of time you spent in an x-ray machine because if you got too much exposure to x-rays, then like bad things would happen. Well, if that's I've true, never whoops, done that. I haven't logged it once. <laughs> right? You said an hour and I was like, damn, like that's, that's going to go in your log. It couldn't. Oh God. It, maybe it was too long. I was in like the lead vest, but it was, it was certainly like they were really taking a thorough baseline of my teeth. <laughs> we just want to know all the nooks and crannies. Yeah, I was like, okay, fine. Didn't I just do this a year ago or whatever? <laughs> um, wow, hats off to you for going to the dentist that often. Okay, I, also, I... I also had an appointment this morning that I canceled, so I'm not all good. <laughs> okay, well, before my last dentist appointment, which was, I believe, in 2020, uh -huh. I had not been to the dentist for 10 years. Oh, I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. This is the best time to go back under the guise of COVID, because you're like, oh, sorry, I, like it's been COVID. I haven't had time to make an appointment. <laughs> Sometimes we really should use COVID to our advantage. Yeah, and that's the only mm -hmm. time. <laughs> so like gamma rays, X-rays get bounced around in our atmosphere. They are slightly larger than gamma rays, but still small enough to get bounced around the particles uh, in our air. So they don't reach the ground. And we also have to send stuff into space to study X-rays. So the um, the... I think most well-known and most widely used X-ray telescope is the XMM Newton Observatory, which was launched by the European Space Agency in 1999 and is still going strong. Aww, and one of the last 90s babies. <laughs> wow, they were really trusting that Y2K wasn't going to end the world. <laughs> Unlike me in Staten Island, who was confident the world was about to end. <laughs> What did you do to prepare for the end of the world? Oh, I made up a dance that was like just about how we're all going to die in the Y2K because I think I thought that was mm. funny, but I actually, maybe it's growing up Catholic, but the apocalypse mindset is so tempting to me and like so, I was so into it. Mm. <laughs> it's like, can you mm. imagine? Anyway, don't listen I to can. me. I, I can. I really can imagine. I dystopian. <laughs> Um, I've kind of felt like we were living in an apocalypse for the last couple of years. So oh, I, I get that I completely. 
it's Moya, and I wanted to give a quick shout out to our amazing patrons who are keeping Pale Blue Pod going. First off, I want to thank our latest pre-main sequence stars, Leanne, Catherine Fraser, Ayla Walker, Danielle Moriando, and Emma Farrell. Know that even though you're not fusing hydrogen into helium in your cores, you are still providing a fantastic service to us and to the universe. So thank you. Also, thank you to our latest Red Dwarf or M Dwarf stars. We know we can't see any of you with our naked eyes in the night sky, but we know you're there doing so much of the the illuminating and warming labor in the universe. So thank you to Canon Cookie and Ama. And as always, because they get thanked every episode, thank you so much to our sun-like stars, Sharn Llewellyn and Finn. It is absolutely amazing that your habitable zone just happens to be where our planet is orbiting around you, too. So thank you again. And you, listener, can support us, hear your name on this pod, get access to director's commentary for every episode, and make it to our patron star chart by supporting us on Patreon. You can find the star chart, Patreon info, and more at our website, palebluepod.com, or you can just go straight to the source and support us on patreon.com slash palebluepod. And remember, the first 50 people to sign up to support us on Patreon will be eligible to receive a signed and personalized copy of my book, The Milky Way, An Autobiography of Our Galaxy. So thank you again to our patrons, and I would love to say your name on this show. So uh, go to patreon.com slash palebluepod. Hey, it's Corinne. I wanted to quickly tell you about an incredible new offering from Multitude, classes. People say that podcasting is easy, but then no one actually explains how to get one going or how to grow or how to avoid, you know, all the pitfalls that could stop your project immediately. And that's why for the first time, Multitude is offering classes for podcasters by podcasters. You'll learn from weekly instruction, hands-on homework, lots of valuable feedback from your instructor and classmates in the online classroom. They're starting out with three classes in the first round. First on sustainable podcasting, creating a structure and workflow so your show works with you by Eric Silver. Podcast mixing and mastering for non-engineers by Brandon Grugel, a class I think I should take. And then how to make a living as a digital creator by Amanda McLaughlin. Now, these are an amazing gift for aspiring podcasters in your life and also a way for you to kick off 2023 by working on a new project. Learn more about the dates, curriculum, technical details, or just register today by going to multitude.production slash classes or check out the posts on Multitude social media feeds. Listening to Pale Blue Pod is a great way to learn about astronomy concepts, but it's no secret that we're not here to make you better at math. If that's the type of thing you're after, I'd like to recommend Brilliant. Brilliant is a program online and in app form for lifelong learners that replaces lecture videos with hands-on interactive lessons. You can learn about the complementary angles in a triangle by actually stretching out a triangle on your screen to see the angles change in real time. And you can learn about the center of mass in physics by trying to balance a weighted beam on your digital finger. Those are just a couple of examples. Brilliant has thousands of lessons in math, scientific thinking, and even computer algorithms, and they add new ones every single month. I think that the world really needs more people who can use knowledge and logic to reason through problems, and Brilliant is the best way to practice those skills online interactively. 
To get started for free, visit brilliant.org slash palebluepod or click on the link in the description. The first 200 of you will get 20% off Brilliant's annual premium subscription. Again, you can join Brilliant for free at brilliant.org slash palebluepod or the link in the description. And come on, have a good time getting smarter. So the next region that we have to talk about is the ultraviolet region or the UV region. UV, I know it Mm -hmm. from skincare. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, There are multiple like categories of UV light. There's UV A, UVB, and UBC. Um, and like some of them are, one of them is supposed to be like really bad for your skin, but I don't, rem- I never remember which I one. I think UVA and UVB and probably okay. the other one too. <laughs> probably. Well, I, I, the cool thing, I'll, a little spoiler. Uh, <laughs> um, our atmosphere also blocks a lot of UV light from the sun. Not all of it, mm-hmm. but um enough that we usually don't have to deal with dangerous UV levels. Yes. Um, So the wavelength range here, uh, a UV light can range from 10 to 400 nanometers in wavelength. Um, So it's it's just smaller than the wavelengths that we can see with our human eyes. Um, You can make UV photons by passing a stream of electrons through a gas like mercury. Uh, Our sun also provides a lot of UV radiation. Um, In fact, most stars give off a lot of UV radiation. um, And the, like the, the processes of creating a star, of of forming a star from scratch, produce a lot of x-rays. So we often will use UV light to study star forming regions um, because it lets us see like oh, what sure. those baby stars see. are doing. That makes sense. I get that. Mm-hmm. Uh, some animals can see in the ultraviolet, some birds, some <gasps> reptiles, and bees can see them. And oh. I remember seeing this really fun documentary that used a UV camera to look at flowers to see what bees would see. Um, it was Aww. very cool. We'll absolutely be putting that in the director's notes. Yes. I've had the UV flashlight. Ooh. Wait, is that just like a black light? I guess so. It must be because everything yeah. white glowed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's a black light. <laughs> I ran a summer camp a few years ago, and one of the, like, science experiments we did was, like, we made glow-in-the-dark jello, which, like, glowed Ooh. when you shone a black light on it. And really what you do is you put a little bit of tonic water in when you make the jello. Oh, so cool. Because tonic um, yeah. glows under black, black light. So, yeah, it tasted disgusting and the kids loved it. <laughs> <laughs> those two things usually follow each that other. Usually, yeah. Those things usually, <laughs> I should have guessed. I was like, these are the kids are going to hate this. And then there was like, they were all gone. <laughs> I forgot that tonic water was UV. Like, I forgot that there were normal things you could consume that glowed under yes, a black light. Completely. And I was like, could you still eat this jello? Yeah, well, I fed it to children. <laughs> So you hope so. So you gotta hope. For the, for the, for the legal sake of this podcast, <laughs> yes, they can. Um, there are a lot of telescopes that see in the UV because it's so close to the visible region of the spectrum. Um, but Hubble, the Hubble spacecraft can see in the UV. And uh, the Galaxy Evolution Explorer, which was launched by NASA in 2003, primarily looks in the ultraviolet. 
Um, the next range, I'm going to try and get through through this one as quickly as I can because it already gets too much attention, <laughs> is the visible or optical region of the electromagnetic spectrum. It spans from 400 to 750-ish nanometers. Um, and honestly, this is my hot take about the visual region of the spectrum. I don't think it would have its own region if we didn't happen to see in this part of the spectrum. Because, mm. like, why? Why should it? It's not yeah. special. I feel like it should just get absorbed <laughs> into UV and infrared. It shouldn't be its own thing. Oh, okay. The only reason it is is because we happen evolved... To see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we evolved to see this because this is the part of the spectrum where our sun has its peak in its energy. Ah, okay. Is it a coincidence that we can see it? That Like, we evolved to see it that way. Right. We evolved okay. to see it because that's what most of the light coming to our planet was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The biggest downside to optical observation is that you have to do it at night because the sun gives off sure. a shit ton of yep. visible or optical light. So you have to wait until the sun is on the other side of the planet from your telescope mm-hmm. if you want to look at the night sky. Um, well, I guess you can also observe the sun in the in the optical. True, true. Yeah. So you really have to be a night owl to be an astronomer. To be a, a visible astronomer. Yeah. Mm, no thanks. No thank you. <laughs> yeah. But you've all of the other ones you can do pretty much at any time. Love that. This, it doesn't. It gets too much attention. So I'm moving it on. I refuse to. to okay. Skip. I refuse to say anything else. Next. Um, the infrared part of the spectrum goes from roughly 750 nanometers to a thousand nanometers or one millimeter. Um, and like, that's so short. I feel like we really could just absorb the region of the spectrum, which shall not be named, into the infrared <laughs> and give it a larger range. You know. Sure. Sure. Um, but but this is one of the most useful regions of the spectrum um, whenever you are using a remote control or Ooh. a thermal imaging camera or electric heaters, you are taking advantage of infrared. Wow. Light. OK, now this is my favorite one. I know it's pretty good. Um, scientists can use infrared telescopes to learn about the changing temperatures on Earth. So they do actually point telescopes back at the Earth uh, to help us, you cool. know, Keep track of climate change. Yeah, it's good to get a bird's eye view of what's going on. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> um, I tend to think of IR, uh, the infrared region, as the heat region of the spectrum. And and you were saying earlier, mm-hmm. like you, you started to say that too, that when yeah. you think of, of infrared, you think of heat because of the thermal imaging cameras. Yes. Um, but really, that doesn't make much sense because the very hot things will produce more energetic photons. Ah. Um, but it's only things that are like warm or hot on human scales yeah. that produce the infrared. Uh, totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Infrared observations tell us a lot of really cool things about space. They can tell us about objects that are too cold to emit in the region of the spectrum, which shall not be named. Um, <laughs> like, like planets, because they, they aren't producing their own light most of the time, or very small stars that are kind of cool and dim, or just like clouds of gas, these nebulae mm-hmm. that we see out there in space. Um, and these long wavelengths are perfect for cutting through dust. And there's dust everywhere in the galaxy. There is dust everywhere in my apartment. <laughs> well, Corinne, your apartment's in the galaxy. Oh, right. I am space. The apartment you is space. space. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so it's because of the infrared observations that we've done that we were able to study the center of the Milky Way galaxy because there's a lot of like stars and gas and dust between us and the center of the galaxy. So we needed those infrared wavelengths to cut through all the dust. Um, and some of the infrared images that we've captured of the center of the galaxy are breathtaking. They're so beautiful, but not as beautiful as the radio images. I'm just going to say that now. Spoiler. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> so the the telescopes that observe in the infrared, there are a lot of them, so many, because we really like to see through all this dust. Uh, but the Hubble telescope will observe in the infrared sometimes. Uh, the Herschel telescope was specifically meant to observe in the infrared. And uh, JWST, whose name I will also not be saying out loud, um, the, ju- the, the just wonderful space telescope yeah. uh, will be able to observe in the infrared. Cool. That's that on that. Um, next, <laughs> microwave light. Microwaves. I know them. You, you've heard, <laughs> you've used one. I've used one. <laughs> I don't have one, but I do wish I did. You don't have a microwave? I don't. It like didn't kind of come with the apartment and there's so oh. little counter space that we're like, would it even? Where would we even put it? But guess Ooh. what? Every day, boy, do I wish I had a microwave. I could just heat something up real quick. Uh huh. Here oh, I, I am bet. putting things on the stove or in the oven. Like I'm in the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you're toiling just as much as they I did. I am back toiling then too. no different than them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, in the 1800s, before we knew about X-rays and uh, and and microwaves, before the Titanic, <laughs> <laughs> um, microwave light can have wavelengths from one millimeter to 30 centimeters. So now we are finally starting okay. to get into is, units these are of numbers. I know, people, yeah, yeah, that people know. Uh, see, wa- wavelengths of light are usually very, very small. Yeah. Um, I don't have much to say about what we observe in the microwave. I think the most interesting space knowledge that the microwave region of the spectrum has given us is knowledge of what we have named the cosmic microwave background. So in 1965, two scientists, uh, one named Arno Penzias, mm-hmm. Penzias, and Robert Wilson. Okay, they... <laughs> two different names. <laughs> Easy <I know>. to <laughs> Okay, I got I just, it. I love it. Arno Penzias. Like, that's just a nice name. And that's then a very just... plain Robert Wilson. <laughs> Robert Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> Together, they detected a buzz in the, in the microwave region of the spectrum Ooh. that came from every single direction around their telescope. And most sources... Um, come from a very specific point in the sky because they're coming from a target. But this was coming from everywhere. So they thought it was a mistake. They were like, are we picking up on some noise from electronics or from like radio stations or something? Um, They decided it wasn't that. They thought, oh, maybe we're just picking up on some, some weird radiation from all of the bird poop on the telescope. Oh, that's so funny. I know. The poop is radiating. Yes. Poop radiates. Let's remember that, friends. Oh, my God. Um, so they they cleaned up the telescope and they caged, like, all of the birds that they could find in the area to make sure they wouldn't put more poop on the telescope. <laughs> but they, they kept seeing the the signal. So then they were like, okay. Well, if it's not electronics or bird poop, the only other thing it could be is like a real space thing. That's so funny. <laughs> Those two- are the options. 
Oh my god, this is that's really funny. I didn't think of poop as being noisy, but mm-hmm. I love that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe it's specifically pigeon poop that's noisy, but no, yeah. I think I think all poop is noisy. I believe that. <laughs> Uh, So what they were observing was actually the basically heat signature left over from the Big Bang. Oh. And that's why it's everywhere, because the Big Bang technically happened everywhere. Because the Big Bang happened in that, like, tiny little primordial atom almost 14 billion years ago. And then that whole thing expanded. And we are in, like, the expanded part of that. So the Big Bang happened everywhere. It left its mark. And we see that as the cosmic microwave background. I'm so proud of us as humans for figuring it out. (laughs) Yes, me too. Thank you. (laughs) I'm like, oh, Like, we've come so far. And to have, like, to keep finding evidence, it's like proving that other idea. Oh, you guys, we did it. (laughs) We did it. We're not done. Mm -mm. We still have so much more to learn, but I think that's really nice that we, we have something to look forward to. And we should always have something to look forward to. Yes, you need one more thing. One more bite. <laughs> so I, I said that the cosmic microwave background is like the heat signature left over from the Big Bang. And we just talked about how uh, if you're thinking about heat, you're probably thinking about infrared radiation, especially mm-hmm. like maybe not hot things, but warm things. Yeah. Right. And so it might be confusing that we call it the cosmic microwave background, but uh, that's actually like a a fun consequence of the expansion of the universe. Because when the Big Bang happened, when the universe was much smaller, this signal was in the infrared. Um, It was a heat signature. But as the universe expanded, those waves of light also expanded. Um, So because microwaves are, yeah, like the, the literal wavelengths got bigger. Mm-hmm. So it went from being in the infrared to being in the microwave, which I think is really cool. I love that. I'm totally getting it. Less energetic. Less. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I got it. You know what, Corinne? Fuck humanity. I'm proud of you. Thank I'm you. I'm so proud my... of you for getting Here this. I am. <laughs> Sleepy on the couch, understanding a new thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm being very brave. You sure are. Um, <laughs> So most of the telescopes that observe in the microwave are actively looking at the cosmic microwave background, like the Cosmic Background Explorer or the COBE instrument or the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe or Mm -hmm. WMAP um, or the Planck Telescope. Planck! (laughs) (laughs) Named after a person. You know, like there's, there's also like... Plonk time and plonk distance and the Plonk Institute. So we can we can, we can do a whole we'll episode a on Plonk. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, I love that a Plonk episode. Uh, but but these instruments have been instrumental Ooh. in showing us the like the shape and the distribution of the cosmic microwave background, which lets us understand how material was distributed in the early universe. So that's good. We we want to study the microwave. Um, and that leads us to the final region of the electromagnetic spectrum, the radio waves. The radio. Um, radio waves are anything above 30 centimeters in length, uh, okay. in wavelength. And I'm like from 30 centimeters all the way up to thousands of meters. That's how big these wavelengths get. Wow, we're really just lumping them all in. I know, right? <laughs> we really did that. We get we so like, specific sometimes, and then sometimes it's like, and everything else. I, I love how <laughs> the region which shall not be named is is just like 300 nanometers yeah. wide. But then, but Every- then you could have 
a radio wave that's a thousand meters yeah. and a radio wave that is 30 centimeters. Like, what the fuck? All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we can pretty much study anything in space using radio waves. Um, they're really good at cutting through dust and gas. They're really good at um, letting us see into obscured regions of space. So we'll study stars, black holes, galaxies, planets, you name it. And I love radio telescopes. There's, I think, I think radio telescopes might be my favorite telescope. And I'm not just saying that because my first research experience was with the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. Although I might be biased. <laughs> Although you might be a little biased. <laughs> I'm not, I'm just a little bit. Um, but the cool thing about radio waves is that you don't need a mirror to collect them. Um, telescope. When you think of a telescope, you probably think of of something with a mirrored dish so that it can mm-hmm. collect the light, um, so that the light gets reflected off of the dish onto some instrument that collects the data. Um, but radio waves are so large that you don't need a perfectly smooth, flat surface to collect oh, them. Okay. So you can walk on a radio telescope. And I have walked on a radio telescope. They Whoa. look like giant satellite dishes. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you about a few of my favorites because I, I cannot resist. Um, oh, a ra- okay. These radio telescopes, this is what I'm picturing when I, not when I'm thinking of a telescope, but when I picture like some sci-fi movie where they're discovering mm-hmm. alien life and it's like they point the big thing at the sky. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And the reason you think that is because of the movie Contact. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So the movie Contact uh, was set at a real radio observatory called the Very Large Array. And it's not just one telescope. It's actually, I think at this point, something like 27 telescopes working together um, in what is called an interferometer, which is where you have an array of telescopes working together. Um, So that's the the VLA in New Mexico in the U.S., Um, I have been there and it was great. I climbed onto one of the dishes and um, ah. I wasn't supposed to, but I also like climbed up the ladder mm-hmm. from the dish to the the place where um, the actual data gets collected after it bounces off of the mm-hmm. dish. I felt very cool. That's so cool. Um, I have also been to another very famous uh, radio telescope array called ALMA or the Atacama Large Millimeter Slash Submillimeter Array, which I think gives you a look into into more mm-hmm. astronomy acronyms because mm-hmm. that's a really the- terrible one. <laughs> but I love the word ALMA or the name ALMA. I know, Alma. yeah. Um, ALMA is one of the like highest state-of-the-art uh, radio observatories in the world. It's in a desert in Chile, and I went there, and it's like the t- this telescope is at the top of a mountain right next to a volcano. And it's the mountain is so high that you're above, like, two-thirds of the atmosphere. Wow. Um, the oxygen levels are really low. It's very cold. And I was so proud of myself that when we were up there, we were supposed to be driven around by, these, by a couple of trucks. Um, I was with a group. We had to wear oxygen tanks. Yeah. We had to get our, our like, heart rate and, and ox- blood oxygen levels checked before we were allowed to go up to the summit. Um, and we all passed the test, and then we went up there, and both of the trucks broke down. No. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Both of the trucks broke down. And, and like, the radios, the, ironically, the radios weren't working. So oh, no. 
I had to. For you. I know how this ends. Clearly, you're alive. I'm, I'm alive. Yeah, it's, it's all fine. <laughs> I had to run to go get like an, a telescope operator or something, someone who could message down to the main camp and come get us. Oh my uh, so God. I did. I was so proud of myself, like running, running. above two thirds of the atmosphere. Yeah. And then I made a snow angel. Oh, yay! <laughs> I made a snow angel <laughs> under the telescopes. But yeah, Alma's fantastic. Um, I think one of the most beautiful images I've seen from Alma has been of a stellar system actively forming new planets. Because um, you you have like the, we covered this in episode one, actually, how mm-hmm. planets form. You have the baby star in the middle and then this big uh, disk of gas and stuff, like gas and pebbles around it. Um, and the planets form in that disk. And so um, Alma has actually taken images of planet forming regions where you can see the dark paths oh, that's so in cool. the disk as the planets are formed. Yeah, that's very, very cool. cool. Um, and then the telescope that will always, always have a special place in my heart is the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia. It was the first telescope I visited way back in high school. It is a single dish, so not like the the other two that I just talked about. It is a single dish that is more than 300 meters in diameter. It's oh. bigger than a football field. Oh, my God. It looks huge. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at some pictures. It's freaking huge. Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, I don't think it is anymore, but at one point, and definitely when I visited, it was the largest steerable single dish telescope in the world. Yeah. I'm seeing some of these pictures. I was going to say it looks like it's always at a different angle or like, mm-hmm. whoa. Yeah, because you can move it. It's crazy that something that big moves. I know. I know. That's why it's really cool. We really, good job, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There are so many cool things about radio telescopes. Can you tell? Can you tell? I really like radio waves. Yeah, this is your vape. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, should I go from gamma to radio or radio to gamma? And I was like, no, I want to end You got to end on something fun. Mm -hmm. So uh, another cool thing about the GBT is that it sits in the United States' national radio quiet zone. This is an area that straddles the border between... Uh, Virginia and West Virginia. And it's thousands of square miles where the type of radio emission that you can produce is limited. Um, Mm -hmm. So not in the entire radio quiet zone, but in the centers uh, around the GBT and the other telescopes at the observatory, um, there are very strict rules about what radio waves you can emit. And like pretty much everything we do emits radio waves. So when you're in the center of the radio quiet zone, you can't use Wi-Fi. You can't use cell phones. You can't use microwaves. Okay. Well, I might be fine there. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Do you live in the radio quiet zone? (laughs) A twist. (laughs) Um, If you do want to use some of those things, you have to do it in a Faraday cage, which is this contraption that will block electromagnetic radiation. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Then you also have to drive like special cars that... Don't have spark plugs because they'll give off radio waves. Oh, my gosh. All of this is so that when you're taking an observation on one of these radio telescopes, you don't have to worry about accidentally catching a signal from just like Joe Schmo heating up a burrito in his microwave. Oh, my God. Yeah, of course. I understand logically why you need to do it, but it somehow feels like so restrictive. (laughs) Yeah. And so the people who work there, you know, they... 
they know going into it that they're going to have these restrictions. I mean, they have they have Internet. They just have yeah. to use Ethernet cords mm-hmm. and they they have plenty of Faraday cages around. Like I've mm-hmm. been uh, I've stayed in the dorms around the GBT and I have gone into the control room. And, and in all of these central spaces, they have Faraday cages where you can go in and like use a microwave. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. That's that's the electromagnetic spectrum. Yay! <laughs> a beautiful a spectrum. <laughs> it's been a long journey, but I love it. Yeah. Any reactions? Okay. I think what I knew and totally forgot was that um, remote controls and things fall on the spectrum. And like, of course they do, but I don't think about mm-hmm. it logically because it's not like light that I see or witness or think about. So I'm grateful for remote controls right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pretty much everything that we do today relies on light waves. Yeah. Like yeah. If you're listening to the radio, that's not sound waves. That right. is light waves that get interpreted by the machine in your car or like uh. sending texts or like so many things rely on electromagnetic radiation. I personally really rely on it more than I realized. I just like don't think about how things happen. I'm just like texting someone and I'm like, the other day I, kn- I was like, how does this work? Well, why would you think about it? Like, yeah, I'm just happy it's working. You don't need to think about it these days. Yeah. yeah, I'm happy I'm here and it's doing its thing. And now I get to order dinner right to my house. <laughs> the peak of civilization, uh-huh. IMO. Um, so I think we all know that the radio is my favorite region of the electromagnetic spectrum. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was oh, very yeah. clear. Um, Corinne, did you have a favorite region? Okay, I'm really torn because this is such a silly answer and it's absolutely because I don't have access to it, but microwaves because huh. a snack I used to make a lot. I worked in a movie theater in high school mm-hmm. and I would come home really late at night after the last show, I would put on Saturday Night Live and Great. I would make, um, I would cut open like raw peppers, like jalapeno peppers and put in like truly a block of cream cheese inside of it. <laughs> and I would microwave it. And it was this really big comfort snack for me. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Huge. The caloric intake must have been psycho. But I would eat <laughs> these hot blocks of cream cheese and peppers. Um, and I have a really special place in my heart for for proper mic- microwaves. Mm. And then mm. I would take my contact lenses out and go to bed. And I would still have jalapeno oil on my fingers. And that <gasps> is a mistake I made more than once. Wow. This is a thing I don't learn. And here I am again. This is why we're here, because I certainly mm-hmm. took science class and retained nothing. <laughs> well, you know, at least you don't have a microwave now, so you you can't do I that. I can't make that mistake again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have been forced to learn not to do that. But I do miss microwaves, and I love what they do for me and my late night yeah. snacking. Um, <laughs> microwaves do actually use microwaves to heat up food. The The way that they work is by using a specific wavelength of microwave light that excites water molecules. Um, It vibrates the water molecules and that heats them up and that is how your food heats up. I love that. Mm -hmm. So there's like fun things you can do. Yeah, that's why you have to, you should add water to some things when you're heating it up. But Mm -hmm. it's also like there are some fun things. Like if you have a perfectly like pure frozen ice cube, there's no liquid water in it. And so it will not heat up in a microwave it will melt just because of like the right. ambient temperature but it won't the microwave will not make it melt interesting i had no idea about that 
Good thing I don't have a microwave to run a bunch of experiments right now. <laughs> like, can I microwave this? <laughs> another another fun thing. You just keep reminding me of cool things about microwaves, both the, the region of the spectrum and the tool. Um, we used to do a lab when I was in grad school for like teaching a lab for undergrads where you measure the speed of light using a microwave. Like you take a, a chocolate bar or something and you put it in the microwave and you can see where it melts the most there will be like two points on the bar where it melts so you can measure the wavelength of light oh that's so like it's the oh my god that's so fun Mm -hmm. and because i met i mentioned that formula where you can go from wavelength to frequency by using the speed of light if you know the wavelength and you know the frequency you can also measure the speed of light i love that i love these hands-on applications (laughs) that's a lab i I want to take there are a lot of listeners out there right now just like Putting chocolate bars in their microwave. Yeah, everyone put Use your chocolate plate. bar in the microwave and let me know what happens because I can't do it myself. <laughs> nice. There's another fun experiment you can do with a marshmallow, um, but I don't really remember what that one was supposed to teach you other than if you put a marshmallow in a microwave, it's going to get huge. The summer camp where I fed children tonic jello, we uh, <laughs> we made like molecules out of pretzels and marshmallows, and that Ooh, was really so fun. Really, that's, that's all I have. I, yeah. I, I know it felt like I was going to go on forever. <laughs> No, but that's all I have. Not at all. But now I'm getting hungry and sleepy. The perfect combo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, I know we are at your parents' house. Is there any way they have a nice dinner waiting for us? I don't know about nice, but it would be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, anything that we can eat on this couch is going to be real nice. I'm almost positive there's frozen pizza. So. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that's all we have. But until next week, what we really want you to remember is that you, like Corinne's apartment, (laughs) are space. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Pale Blue Pod was created by Moya McTeer and Corinne Caputo with help from the Multitude Productions team. Our theme music is by Evan Johnston and our cover art is by Shay McMullen. Our audio editing is handled by the incomparable Misha Stanton. Stay in touch with us and the universe by following at Pale Blue Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Or check out our website, palebluepod.com. We're a member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like Pale Blue Pod, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. If you want to support Pale Blue Pod financially, join our community over at patreon.com slash palebluepod. For just about $1 per episode, you get a shout out on one of our shows and access to director's commentary for each episode. The very best way, though, to help Pale Blue Pod grow is to share it with your friends. So send this episode, this link, to one person who you think will like it, and we will appreciate you for forever. Thanks for listening to Pale Blue Pod. You'll hear us again next week. Bye. Bye.